Michael and Carrie, thank you very much. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to open it to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning I want to focus on two verses, verses 9 and 10. I also want to be up front with you that this morning is not going to be the typical message or the typical way that I preach. If you are a guest of ours today, please understand that. Um, usually I'll take a text and we'll walk through it, trying to understand it and apply it. But this morning is going to be a mixture of things. This morning will be a mixture of testimony, of prayer, and even sharing some of the vision for Trinity. If I'm pausing a lot, it's because there's a struggle that I've been having for several weeks approaching today. And it's a struggle that I think most every preacher will struggle with. And that is really how open and vulnerable to be in the pulpit. There's the risk of making this in some ways a, a counseling session for me to be able to share what's going on in my life. And I don't want it to be that. But at the same time, I've never wanted to present myself in a way that wasn't real, that wasn't authentic. I've never wanted anyone, let alone anyone in this congregation, to think that I'm something that I'm not. So I ask you that as this time unfolds to just prayerfully lift me up before the Lord, that I would walk that line wisely as I just really share from my life and my heart with you today. I wanted to base my thoughts this morning from these two verses in 2 Corinthians 12. Follow with me as I read. But he, that is God, said to me, Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I ask for your blessing upon this time. This morning already we have seen in your word a, a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, the line of the tribe of Judah, yet the lamb who was sacrificed and the one who unfolds history. So this morning I take great comfort in knowing that not one second of one minute, of one hour, of one day, of one month, of one year unfolds without your sovereign power overseeing it. So help me, Father. Help me to communicate clearly. Help me, Father, to glorify you. For it is in your name that I pray. Amen. In reading these two verses, it's very important to understand what's happening with Paul and why he writes this. The church at Corinth had been questioning his right 
to exercise leadership. Basically, they were saying, Paul, who are you to claim to be an apostle? You're not trained rhetorically. Paul, when you showed up here, you didn't carry with you any letters of recommendation. So basically, they're saying, Paul, why should we even listen to you? Some had even brought up that Paul had some sort of weakness. Some thorn in the flesh. Paul never identifies it. Well, scholars have guessed. Some, some think that maybe Paul suffered from very bad eyesight. They base this upon the end of Galatians where Paul says, See what large letters I write with my own hand. And so they think maybe he struggled with sight. Others, for some reason unknown to me, even guess that he struggled with malaria in an ongoing way. Some think, and this is where I lean toward, that based on everything that Paul had experienced in his life, he suffered physically. Think about it. This was a man that had been beaten to death, almost to death with rocks. Several times he'd been beaten, 39 times with a rod. His back had to look like a, a city map filled with scar tissue. He'd spent nights at sea, nights in hunger, nights in deprivation, nights in prison. Don't you know that his body ached every morning when he tried to get up off of his cot? But the truth is, the thorn is never identified. And I think that's so you and I can identify with Paul. That in the thorns that we have, in the weaknesses that we have, we can pray alongside with Paul and say the very same thing, that in our weaknesses, the power of Christ is magnified. Now, Paul had prayed three times for this thorn to be removed. Whatever it was, Lord, heal me, heal me, heal me, take it away. And God said no. Now, I want to be as clear as I can on this. I have not turned to this passage because I think that God has said no to healing Emma. To the contrary, my wife and I, our friends, and my church family, I hope you believe that God is at work healing her. Because Emma has come further than any doctor ever thought she would. She is doing more than every, anyone ever thought she would do. And she has made steps of progress that, to me, are simply nothing short of miraculous. So because of that, we are committed to keep knocking, to keep seeking, and to keep asking for Emma's full restoration. And I hope that you will join with us in that. But what draws my attention to this passage is the connection that Paul draws between weakness and the power of Jesus Christ. You can see it there. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But his strength is not one that is found within him. The strength that he refers to is found at the end of verse 9. He says, I will boast more the gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest or abide in or dwell within me. The strength that Paul wants us to see is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But you can't experience that without acknowledging weakness. In many ways, it's not necessary to define weakness. But if you like official definitions, weakness could be defined as that which prevents you from doing or experiencing something. 
One definition of weakness is a state of incapacity. But even if you don't know the formal definition, you know exactly what weakness is. It's that realization that you can't fix the problem. Weakness is that moment that you realize you can't do anything to make it better or change things. And that you can't say or do anything to stop the pain. And so Paul says, I'll boast of my weaknesses. Boasting here is not a display of arrogance. No one's arrogant over weakness. Boasting means to put on display. So rather than hiding his weakness, this thorn, rather than trying to shield it from everybody to see, he embraces it. See, to me, there's an interesting dynamic that takes place here. It's almost like a mathematical equation. The more that you and I acknowledge our weakness and our shortcomings and our lack of strength, the more we will know and dwell in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But the opposite is also true. The more you and I deny that we have weaknesses, refuse to admit them, or live with this, this facade that we've got everything together, we will not know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is not to point out his weakness for sympathy or self-pity, but simply so that the power, the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ will be on display in his life that power of Jesus to change and to sustain, the power of Jesus to engage this fallen world and to endure, the power of the resurrected Jesus to help us to persevere and not just persevere, but to proclaim. And it's in that same spirit that I want to share with you today. To simply share from my life and things that I've been thinking about for some time. As Nathan pointed out earlier, and as even as is in the bulletin, without my knowledge, may I say, I will be turning 50 on Wednesday. And before this month is over, I'll be a grandfather. Yay! <laughs> I think I've embraced both. I've realized that Age and time is going to happen whether you embrace it or not. You can't avoid it. I found this out in a, to me a very funny way about a month ago. Two months ago I began shopping for a new pair of tennis shoes. And every time I look for tennis shoes I remember an experience I had when I was out looking for shoes years ago with my kids. And I had picked up a pair of tennis shoes and I looked at them and I said, what do you all think? And they Pretty much every one of them said, no, Daddy, those are, those are Papaw tennis shoes. Those are the type of tennis shoes that Papaw Clarence wears. So, no, don't, don't get those. Don't, you're not a Papaw. So I said, okay. So every time I buy shoes, that's in the back of my mind. So I bought these new tennis shoes. Last month, Jody's mom and dad came up to visit, and Clarence had on the same exact shoes I was wearing. <laughs> I kid you not. It's unavoidable, you know? So I've, I think I've embraced being a papaw. And I recognize that many of the ages we have in life are like mile markers. Turning 16, turning 21, turning 50. 
But I have to confess to you at this At this mile marker, the road we're on is nothing like I ever expected. I guess all of us can say that to an extent. If you get to the age of 50 and your life has gone exactly like you thought it would gone would go, you're either extremely very blessed or you're lying to yourself. I know life rarely goes exactly how we think it'll go. But more and more I have felt like the words of the old Smokey Robinson song. Where he said, people say I'm the life of the party because I can tell a joke or two. And although I might be laughing loud and hearty, deep inside I'm blue. So take a good look at my face. You may see my smile looks out of place. If you look closer, it's easy to trace the tracks of my tears. You all have walked with us through this journey in ways that Jody and I and Samuel and Emma and Gabe can never truly express our gratitude for. But I've realized something. For those of you that have started attending Trinity or even joined this congregation in the last three years, you have never seen or even met my wife. Emma is just a name to you. So I wanted to do something a little bit out of the ordinary this morning. And as much as I can, just to share our story again, I I can't go into a lot of detail, but to show you some pictures. I'll start with the first one. James, if you'll bring that up, please. For those of you that have never met my wife, that's me and her. I think it was the fall of 2015. After I wrote that, I began to doubt myself. I do that more and more with dates now because I'm going to be 50. I think it it may have been 2014, I don't know, but that's Jody. The next picture, is from, I'm sorry, November of 2015. That is Emma on the left. That is Sue Ellen. Now she is Sue Ellen Logan. Her and her husband Gabe are here and my son Samuel on the right. We were attending their cousin's wedding that day in November. If you'll go to the next slide. That is him at her graduation. In May of 2016, Emma graduated from Providence Academy. And that summer, made plans to attend Bryan College where she was on a volleyball scholarship. And the next picture, that is from October of 2016. The volleyball team from Bryan played in Morristown. And we had driven down to watch her play. And we were just goofing around in the parking lot of Zaxby's after the game. 
On November 12th, we got a call from Emma that she wasn't feeling well. It seemed like flu symptoms, so we went, Jody did, and picked her up. And on November 16th, she was admitted to the hospital here. I can't tell the whole story. She slipped into a coma on the 20th. And on the 23rd was transported to the University of Tennessee Medical Center. James, if you'll show the next pictures. We stayed in the neurointensive care unit at UT from November 23rd, 2016 to December 29th. People ask me what happened with Emma. On one level, we don't know. For some reason, her body attacked her brain. We left the ICU at the UT Med Center. And we spent from December 29th of 2016 to February 22nd of 2017 at the Specialty Hospital in Powell. On Valentine's Day of 2017, the doctor said after further testing, they thought that Emma would die. They believed that within six to eight months, she would die. And so we moved to the hospice house in Bristol, Tennessee, where we lived from February 22nd to December 26th of 2017. And then God started doing some amazing things. Instead of getting worse, Emma started showing signs of improvement. Showing movement in her fingers and her toes. Her eyes opening and responding to us. And so we came home. In June of 2017, we were discharged from hospice care because she no longer qualified. We've come a long way. There are still challenges every day. I share with you most every Sunday. And one of the common things that you hear is asking me to pray for her lungs. And I want you to understand why that is so crucial. Every time we encounter something with her lungs, there are words of a doctor that echo in our mind. Because he said, whatever had happened to Emma neurologically is done. It's just an issue of how much recovery will occur. But the greatest threat to her life would be secondary issues, such as her lungs and her skin. And that's why often Jody and I and our family go up and down by how well she's breathing, how clear her lungs are. In our lives now, there's a simplicity, but there's also a complexity. Our goal is to take care of Emma and to maintain our life as best we can. But that's very complex in many ways, and I know many of you could echo that in your life. So the question is, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate when there's so many decisions that you have to make and you don't know what to do Often I reflect on something that Mark Twain wrote. Before he became Mark Twain, he was Samuel Clemens. And before he became a writer, he worked on a riverboat on the Mississippi. As he was working alongside the pilot, the pilot told him that the Mississippi, the banks will often shift. And at night, it's very difficult to tell if the river has shifted in one way or another. So Twain asked, well, how do you navigate then? And the captain said, you find markers on the river that are unchanging. 
You find things that do not change and do not shift. That is how you navigate. So you hold on to that which doesn't change. There's an old gospel song that says, Time is filled with swift transition. Not of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Trust in Him who will never leave you. Whatsoever years may bring, if by earthly friends forsaken, still more closely to Him clean. You can go on to the next slide, James. But I know that holding on to those things can be challenging. To be very candid with you, there are times that I struggle because I just feel emotionally numb. Because in our lives, sometimes the emotions of a day can swing from excitement to frustration to disappointment to exciting all in one day with fear always clinging just in the, the background. For me, part of the challenge has been this. Carving out what's a normal life. As I said, in taking care of Emma, she's come a long way. Those are pictures from Christmas last year. Where she's in her chair sitting up in her bed. If you'll go to the next slide, James. And I'm losing the ability to type as I get older. I'm turning 50 next week. Did you know that? So therap, why? <laughs> this is in early 2019 where Emma was in therapy some days it feels like a step forward and two steps back August was very difficult for us but we we're still pressing on you can go to the next one if that's the final pictures for me it's been hard adjusting in many ways there used to be a natural flow to my life where I would usually come to the church in the mornings and study for a few hours then the afternoons would be filled with either administration or visitation. What used to be very natural to me has become difficult in many ways just being able to carve out time or to be able to think and to think clearly. But I think that's the reality of grief. Anyone who has gone through grief knows that there are changes that occur and sometimes things that seem to come very naturally come with struggle now. I've also learned that joy and grief can coexist. I think sometimes we convince ourselves that life is either one or the other. Either you're all joyful or you're not or you're either in the midst of grief or you're not and I don't think that's accurate. I don't think in this world we'll ever be clear-cut joy or clear-cut grief. Yes, there are times where joy may be predominant, but the grief is there. And there are times where the grief is predominant, but there is still joy. Life here will be a mixture until Jesus Christ returns. And if you've ever suffered loss, you know what I mean. You know that there's a part of you that still hurts even in the midst of joy. But the thing that keeps us anchored is hope. The expectation that things will be better. The belief that God is at work even in the darkness. And one of the things we have learned is to look for the small things. Because you learn that there's really nothing that is small. Yesterday served as an example of that to me. We had a golf outing here at the church. And got a call midway through the beginning of it that Samuel, my son, wasn't feeling well. And 
I left on the 10th hole to take him to first assist and we ended up going to the ER where we stayed till 7 o'clock last night. He has a virus that caused the lymph nodes around his abdomen and colon to become inflamed causing intense pain. Uh, nothing can be done. It's got to run its course so he's home on pain medication and so needless to say it wasn't the day that I expected it would be. But isn't that life? We joke in our family, whenever we have to go to the ER, we know exactly what to do and how to handle it. When you've been there enough, you have a frequent visitor card. It says something. We've got eight punches. Two more, we get a free visit. That's one of the things I've learned is just learning to laugh. But in the midst of all that, Jody said that Emma had an extraordinarily good day yesterday that she was alert and moved her whole foot and ankle on command. That's huge. That is huge. Don't overlook the small things. We serve a big God. But He is a big God who is at work in every detail of life. So look at the small things and savor them. As I said, my ministry has changed in many ways. One of the things that I, Jody and I adopted, one of our sayings is do the next thing. When you're faced with so many decisions that are complex, sometimes you just have to focus on what do I need to do next? Well, for me, and I want to be upfront about this, taking care of my family is the priority. I want to continue to serve this congregation as best as I can. But it's going to be different than it was five years ago. I work at home now for the majority of the time. I'm simply not able to do visitation. I can't just drop things anymore and leave. When I stepped back into the pulpit, I met with two men who I consider mentors and friends. And I told them my fears about coming back in and they both told me this, you can only do what you can do. So that's what I'm going to try to continue to do here. But understand that taking care of Emma and taking care of Jody, Samuel, and supporting Gabe and Ellen are at the top of my list. Many years ago, there was a couple that were leaving Trinity, and I remember visiting with them. The husband told me that one of the things that concerned him about me and my ministry, he said these words, that you are sacrificing your ministry on the altar of family. I don't regret anything. In fact, sometimes I wonder if I was really there as I should have been. Because the truth is, often when I would go to games or to be there for them, I was carrying a little black book with me and I would take down notes and ideas that came to me about preaching. And so sometimes Jody will have these memories of events and I'm thinking, was I really there? And I know that may be just a man thing, but I think I'm learning to be in the moment more. Pay attention to detail. And what that means for me here is that if Jody has the opportunity to go out, to get out of the house, or to go to lunch with somebody, 
I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make that happen. And if that means I have to rearrange a schedule or change a meeting or do something different, I'm going to do that. But that also means that I need to step back and take a look at here at Trinity. What's going to be best for this congregation? And that's why one of my goals in the next year is to work with the deacons in examining our leadership structure and to begin looking at what would an elder-led church look like here at Trinity. Now, I know the minute I say elders, some of you think about becoming Presbyterian, and I assure you that is not the case. We are still a congregational and will be a congregational-led church. We're not moving away from that. Actually, before Emma became sick, the deacons at that time had started reading and doing some research on what that would look like. And in the next year, I want us to resume that. Because I think an elder-led church is a biblical model that will give us a strong foundation for changes that may occur. Or God forbid, if I have to have an extended uh, absence from leadership, and I know Nathan would echo this, having the shared ministry of elders, I think would be beneficial to this congregation. So in the next year, we'll be moving toward that because it is my goal to serve this congregation. And to serve you as best I can in the ways that I can. And to keep in mind that the ministry indeed is more important than one person. And to keep in mind the things that are truly eternal. Earlier this year, many of you may have read what Joshua Harris posted on one of his blogs. You may not know that name. He was very popular and many years ago, 10 to 15 years ago with his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He became a pastor of a large church in Maryland and had wrote several books on theology. But he announced to the world that he no longer believed. No longer believed in Jesus. No longer believed in God. And stepped away from the faith. Jody and I were discussing that. I remember she looked at me and she said, Mark, what happened with Emma is sad. But that's a tragedy. That's true tragedy. My family and I have been blessed in so many ways. And we are so grateful. And I really don't know what the road ahead holds. But I want us to walk it together. I want us to have a commitment to do the next thing. To love, support, encourage one another. I'm really struggling, and this may be one of the few times of candor you'll hear a pastor say this, on how to end this message. When I was taking preaching classes, they would talk about, and using an airplane as an analogy, you've got to have a good takeoff, good introduction, and a good landing. Bring it to a conclusion. I don't have a good landing for this but to say thank you for allowing me to share with you some things going on in my life and my heart to share life together. What I want to do to close this is I'm going to lead us in a prayer and we're going to stand like we do every week. And if you want to come and pray, pray for me and Jody, pray for Emma, pray for one another, pray for whatever's going on in your life. This altar's available. It's open. So I want to ask you to do that.
I want to ask you to stand with me, if you will. Let's pray together. Father, even as we stand now, Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank